This morning is, as we mentioned, the fifth Sunday, and so our kids actually are standing with us. And the beauty of that is today also marks the beginning of our series in the Gospel of Luke. And so over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at the Gospel of Luke. We'll take a little bit of a break during the middle of the summertime, and then we'll be jumping back into Luke. We're going to tackle Luke in different parts and pieces. So we won't we won't constantly go through Luke. It's large enough that it could take us the next two years or a year and a half to get through. Um, and so we won't do that all in one sum. We will break that up a bit, but we are going to move through the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel of Luke is one of four Gospels. Canon, tell me the other three Gospels besides the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah. So, does anybody know what the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Gospels are referred to? What's Synoptic, yeah, so Synoptic Gospels. So the Synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels that we have in the New Testament, are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They're similar in style, they're similar in laying out uh, the way that the order of the way that the events are shared. And then you have the Gospel of John, which shares a number of similar events, but is laid out quite differently than the synopsis style of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospel of Matthew is written primarily to the Jews, and it focuses on the kingship of Jesus and His coming kingdom. The Gospel of Mark is a little bit different in that it's written to Gentiles in Rome, and it focuses on Jesus as God's servant. And then the Gospel of John is written primarily to the church and focuses on Jesus' deity as the Son of God, being that He is 100% God. But then Luke, which is a little bit different, is written primarily to the Greeks. And it focuses on Jesus' humanity as the perfect Son of Man. And we see that throughout the Gospel of Luke, where humanity of Jesus is emphasized, Jesus being 100% God, 100% man. Now, our tendencies is, are, is always to think in 50%, right? We kind of think everything in the way of, it's always got to come up to 100%. But the reality is in God's economy, many things are 100%, 100%. We ourselves are 100% human and 100% soul. So that idea of God being 100% or of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man shouldn't be foreign to us given that we acknowledge that we too have a soul. So Jesus is emphasized in the Gospel of Luke in His humanity as the perfect Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God who will come to take away the sins of the world that He lives a perfect and sinless life. And He sets in order what humanity was supposed to be at creation apart from sin. God speaks through Luke in the Gospel of the writing of this letter around 60 AD. And it's important to know that Luke was not a disciple. Like Mark, who was not a disciple, Luke himself is not a disciple. Luke was... A, a minister alongside a partner with the Apostle Paul in his work. We see that throughout Acts. But Luke is also a physician. 
And I think Luke is one of the very best books to see how God works through His appointed people, bringing His inspired word through these individuals, but also using their personalities. One of the things that you'll see unique in the Gospel of Luke deals with the hemophiliac woman. The woman who who can't stop bleeding. Now, in the other accounts of the Gospels, there's something unique. They speak of the fact that she visited many physicians and they had no answers. Luke leaves that part out. He simply says she had no answers. Plays into his personality, does it not, as a physician? Right? So, I think Luke is one of the Gospels that helps us see how God works through and speaks through His inspired Word being spoken through human means. Perfect. But using the personality, too, of those who are writing His Word. Well, let's go ahead. We're going to dive into Luke this morning. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're going to go through verse 25. So let's go ahead and stand as we read God's Word this morning. And this is how the Gospel of Luke begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the children of Israel, excuse me, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled 
in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel, this gospel account of you and your life. Thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. And for making the sending of your son clear. Thank you for not forgetting us. And thank you for not forgetting your promises. Lord God, may I drift backwards and may you take the forefront. May you be you who's seen this morning in the proclaiming of your word. And may each of us hear with ears that are open to your truth. May we allow your word to penetrate deep within our hearts. And may we rejoice over the hope declared in this truth. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, Luke starts off in a unique way. And at the start of this passage, and the essence of this portion of Scripture... He's declaring one specific thing, and that is this, that God has not forgotten you or His promises. God has not forgotten you or your promises. God's promises. It is hard for us to understand a God who has not forgotten us when we ourselves can be very unfaithful to the things that we promise. It's easy, isn't it? We'll get to that later. Right? God is faithful to His promises, and He has not forgotten you. See, although other gospel accounts have been written, Luke begins by telling us his specific reason for writing this account. In verses 1-4, through he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes the most comprehensive account of Jesus' life and work that readers might know for sure or have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, much like an investigative reporter. That's how Luke compiles his gospel. It's the most comprehensive gospel account. It includes things that the other gospels do not include. It includes the prodigal son. There are many portions in the gospel of Luke where the other gospels do not include it, but Luke, as a physician presents it in such a way, in an orderly account, 
so that we might have certainty of our faith. The Gospel of Luke is designed not to be some great thing that we read and go, that's a wonderful work of art. It's to be read so that we might have certainty in our faith. God wants us to have confidence in our faith. Now, while the letter is initially directed to Theophilus, it's intended for all believers. And many consider Theophilus to be a government official, but there's not much known about him. It's possible that he was. The words that he used here, most excellent Theophilus, suggests that he was. But Theophilus' name in Greek literally means God-lover. So it's hard to know exactly who Theophilus was and what role that he played. But we do know that Paul most likely uses the letter of Luke, this gospel, along with the, the, with the writings from Acts, as a defense. When Paul is on trial, you see the letter of Acts ends with Paul on trial. And the way that the Gospel of Luke is written is for anyone to be able to read it and see who this Jesus is that Christians follow. So in verses 5 through 7, it continues, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Luke lays out why he's writing this letter, and then he just jumps right in. And he tells us about Zechariah, this priest in Israel who's married to Elizabeth. Now, priests were required to marry other Jews that were from pure lineage lines. But this is unique. It was considered extraordinary when they married a woman of the priestly line, of one of Aaron's daughters, so to speak, that she was a descendant of Aaron. And in one respect, marrying a wife who was also of the same priestly lineage line was to provide a priest with greater honor. This meant that they were favored. In fact, we're told here that they walked righteously before God and blamelessly in all commandments and statutes of the Lord. Both Zechariah and Elizabeth we're faithful followers of the Lord. So as we look at the beginning of this passage, we think, wow, these are two very blessed people. They're honored because they're both of the lineage line of Aaron, serving as priests amongst God's chosen people, the Israelites. And they're walking righteously, blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of God. But it isn't all good news. In fact, we're told that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, today when we hear that, we don't really think of it in context to a spiritual thing. Many times if a couple is trying to have children and they're unable, we grieve with them. 
We don't look at them and say, man, there's something wrong with you. Our heart breaks for them. But in Jewish culture, not being able to have children was seen as a judgment of God. It was actually a disgrace. We're told in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. The Jews had taken this to mean that if you didn't have children, you weren't being rewarded by God. It was because you weren't living a fruitful life before the Lord. Verse 5 of Psalm 127 goes on and says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So couples who weren't able to have children were seen with shame. They experienced shame because they, they saw it as a judgment from God. And so although God saw them as righteous in the sight of men, they weren't perceived as being righteous. There was a blight over them. Elizabeth specifically was seen as a disgrace under the judgment of God. John MacArthur adds, as godly as they, as, as godly as they were, they bore the stigma. But Luke wants us to know that her barrenness had nothing to do with sin in her life. But it had everything to do with something God was planning. So think about this. They're serving. They've been blessed with this wonderful marriage of coming from the same lineage line. They're righteous before God. But they're pained by not being able to have children. And the culture shames them because they see not being able to have children as a disgrace. As a judgment of God against them. But notice something. In spite of this stigma and disgrace, they continue to serve the Lord. Verse 8 through 9 says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the priests were broken down into 24 divisions. They all served around the Feast of the Tabernacle, the Passover, and Pentecost. Otherwise, the remainder parts of the year, those divisions only served Twice a year. Twice a year, the division was served for a week, but only for those chosen by lot could they burn incense in the temple. Now, there were three lots that were given in a given week. Two lots, one that would actually handle the coals that would go into the temple for the offering. One that would prepare the incense for the offering to be burnt. And then... Finally, the one who would offer up the incense to the Lord. And that was the most coveted lot. In fact, priests would live the entirety of their life, many of them, and never be able to serve in that role. And so when the lots were taken, it was assumed that this was in God's sovereign way of saying, this is the one I want to offer the sacrifice. 
This incense was burned once in the morning and once in the evening in accordance with Exodus 30, verse 7 through 8, which says, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Each day offered up for the burning of incense. Now, the burning of incense in the Old Testament is a symbolic representation of our prayer before the Lord. Psalm 141.2 affirms this when it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands at the evening sacrifice. In fact, in Revelation 5, verse 8, this is what it says as well. It says, And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This burning of incense was the, to symbolize the offering of God's prayer or the prayers offered to God from His people. And what's amazing is in the Old Testament, it says that God saw this as a sweet fragrant, a sweet aroma. That when we talk to God, He's not absent. He's not just at a distance, but he actually hears our cries. He hears our pleas. He hears our praise. And it is a sweet fragrance to him. So think of the biggest barbecued burger you can think of or steak. And think about how you are drawn to the smell. What God is saying is, listen, when you pray... He's not some guy over here that's standing off with his back turned, walking away. But rather, he is actually drawn to you. This is part of what James is talking about when he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It is the offering up of prayer. The Lord moves towards us, not away from us, as we seek Him in prayer. So while this is going on, then we're told, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to Him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now it's important to understand why Zechariah might be afraid. All of us, I think, would say, man, it'd be great to see an angel. I'd love to see an angel. But first, we need to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, the appearance of an angel often dealt with God's judgment. It meant that you had done something wrong. So you can imagine, he's serving in the temple, it's his one time to serve, and an angel of the Lord appears next to the altar. The right side was considered the favored side. It's between the lampstand and the altar itself. And an angel appears there. And he's like, uh-oh. Right? What did I do? Right? I think that's often sometimes how we deal with God, is it not? We see God first in the realm of being a punisher rather than the lover of our soul. The one who has sustained us and given us life and given us grace. And so, Zechariah is afraid. But more unique is the fact 
that it's been 400 years since Israel has heard a word from the Lord. The last word that we hear from the Lord is actually out of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And God has been silent in those 400 years. Think about that. That means that not a person in this building would have been alive for the last time that God spoke. In fact, it means that your grandparents, if they lived to be 100 years, and their grandparents lived to be 100 years, and your parents lived to be 100 years old, and you lived to be 100 years old, it means that most likely you still would not have been alive. It's a long time. It's a long time to live in the wilderness. And this angel out of nowhere appears to Zechariah. What have I been done wrong? And, oh, why are you here? Four hundred years they had not heard. But look at the angel's response. The angel doesn't start by explaining why he's here. He doesn't start by coming in and saying, what, you're surprised to see me? He starts with the simple words of, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Don't be afraid, for your prayer has been heard. Imagine how Zechariah might have felt. My prayers for a child have not been answered, and I haven't heard from you in 400 years, and now you're here. God, you have brought a messenger into my presence. Those words that God has heard him. Have you ever prayed and just wondered if what you're praying is even heard? Have you ever wondered where God was, that he seems so distant and far off, that does he even exist? And like Zechariah, Zechariah is not doubting the fact that God exists. He's faithfully serving him. But in our humanity, don't we often wonder, God, I know you're here, but where are you? And God, I've prayed. I'm tired of praying. I just got to leave it in your hands. Here's the thing. God hears those who seek him. God hears those who seek him. And more than just hearing, as we saw, he is actually drawn to the aroma of your prayers to the Lord. He is not running away from you, but he is moving towards you. And we see three things about this God who hears those who seek Him. The first is that God's faithfulness is demonstrated through His personal grace and the fulfillment of His promises. God's faithfulness is demonstrated through His personal grace and the fulfillment of His promises. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. What a beautiful picture. It's been heard. Now, Zechariah in this moment is probably a little confused. Because what he had been praying for and what they had been praying for in the temple was most likely the return of the Messiah. And this angel is saying, I'm going to bear you a son. Now, he's just said 
that listen, we've just learned that they're of advanced age, meaning they're past childbearing age. And he's like, uh, God seems a little late. Right? It seems a little weird. In fact, I wasn't even praying about that when I was in the temple. I was praying about your return. Now, this name, John, in Greek, the name John literally means God has been gracious. God has been gracious. You see, the prayer that has been answered here is twofold. The prayer for a son has been answered. But then second, this son will be the forerunner, the promised messenger to the Messiah. His prayer for a child has been answered, and his prayer for the coming of the Messiah has been answered all in one. Matthew Henry points out, prayers are filed in heaven and are not forgotten through the thing prayed for, excuse me, and are not forgotten though the thing prayed for is not presently given us. The time as well as the thing is the answer. And God's gift always transcends the measure of the promise. Meaning, God's answer is always greater in His promise. Now notice, first, God's personal grace. He's given them a son named John. John is the very example of the fact that God has been gracious towards them. In the same way, God's faithfulness is displayed in the fact that He has given us grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. That through His Son, we have grace. And so that God's faithfulness is always demonstrated personally as well as corporately. So it says here in verse 14 and 15, and you will have joy and gladness and many re- gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So this John was going to bring joy and gladness. Now look at the dual purpose here. There was joy certainly to Zechariah as he hears this news. I mean this is joyful news. Zechariah has yet to walk in that joy, but it's joyful news. It's also joyful news because it's actually bringing in the eschatological purpose of the Messiah. It's ushering in Jesus. This joy is twofold, both personally and corporately. Now, it says that he'll be a Nazarite. Now, for some of us, we look at the Nazarites and we look at the way that they lived and living out in the wilderness, eating crickets is not our design of something that is fascinating or even something that is enjoyable. When my kids were young, I made them eat crickets. I wanted them to try them. One for my own entertainment. Um, but two, because they taste like sunflower seeds when they're dead and dried and packaged. I don't know what they taste like if you eat them while they're alive, and I'm not going to encourage you to do so. 
But the appeal of eating off the land in that way does not appeal to many. But there's an important piece of this fact that John is a Nazarite. It meant that he was set apart for holiness. His motivations, his desires, his character could not be questioned. That when he went as the precursor to the Messiah, they could not look at him, even though they tried to call him a crazy man. They couldn't because his character was not such. He was a man set apart in holiness. And he fit this Nazarite, as we see in Leviticus 10, 8-11, where it says, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are distinguished between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statute the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. This John would be set apart. Now, from a parent point of view, I'd love nothing more for my children to be considered set apart for the Lord. But this purpose also was greater than just the personal blessing of a child. That because John would be ushering in the Messiah, he had to be blameless. He had to be seen as one who is set apart for the purposes of God. In addition to being this son, this personal son, this John would be the fulfillment of God's promise for a messenger who would come heralding in the Messiah. Verse 16 and 17 says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel here quotes the very last part of Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Zechariah knew those were the last words spoken. He's saying your son is going to be the fulfillment of God's promise to send one before the Messiah. Your child is the one that's going to bring in and usher in the age of Christ. What a beautiful thing. All this waiting, all this time that they thought, oh, there's nothing else. And God is now just taking this promise, this prayer that's been heard, and he's using it to bless Zechariah and Elizabeth personally, and he's using it to bless his people in the ushering in of the Messiah. God's faithfulness demonstrated through the personal grace and the fulfillment of his promises. He's not forgotten you, and he's not forgotten your promises. He hears you, even if you can't see it. He hears you. We're told here that he did it in the spirit and power of Elijah. There will be a day when Christ returns. And it is the one thing that many of the Jews missed. That Christ would come to redeem man through the cross. He would then continue to allow his people to be prepared for him to come in his final return. 
John the Baptist serves as the first Elijah, the one who is coming in the power of Elijah, who is calling people to repentance. The very essence of that call, the very essence of experiencing the fullness of God is found through our repentance and belief on his Messiah, Jesus Christ. Secondly, God hears those that seek him. Unbelief prevents us from experiencing the joy of God's work and sharing the good news. Unbelief prevents us from experiencing the joy of God's work and sharing the good news. Unbelief. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I'm kind of with Zechariah here. We can relate to that, can't we? Our first instance is to look at ourselves, look at our our situation, our circumstances. I'll be honest this week, as I was reading this passage, this passage hit me like a ton of bricks. This past year, I've seen God do so many things in my life, but yet I feel this broken body within me going, God, are you sure? Are you sure you've done it? That's what Zechariah is saying. Are you sure? Are you sure? He goes on and he says this. He says, For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. Uh, God, do you forget that we're probably in our 60s, maybe our 70s, and we're going to have a child? Really? Really? And then the angel answers him, and I love this answer from the angel. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Know who I am. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. The same Gabriel who, by the way, over 500 years ago spoke to Daniel and told Daniel that these events would occur. So you think you're old, I'm older. (laughs) And I stand in the presence of God. And God has said it to be so, and it is so, and this is good news to you. Not good news simply that you're going to bear a son, but that your son is going to be a messenger, ushering in the Messiah. It's amazing. God does work in different ways. But I am convinced that often in our lives, he works often in similar ways so that we acknowledge and know who he is. So that we understand and see his voice. God desires to be known. He doesn't desire us to be constantly wondering if it's him. Listen to how he appeared to Daniel in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Over 500 years earlier, he says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, this is Daniel talking, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea, that is praying before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that is the angel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, who we saw earlier in chapter 5, 
came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Wow. God making himself known. He's not looking to confuse you. He's not looking to confuse us. He's looking to bring clarity. Zechariah knew who Gabriel was, and now Gabriel had stand before him. And he's saying, I'm the same angel. The same one who was speaking on behalf of God, letting you know that there would be a Messiah who was coming to save his people. John Piper points out, how many of us, when we are laid low by dark and distressing circumstances, cannot believe that God is working it all out for our infinite good until some ray of light, some extra evidence shows us that it's all going to be okay. Oh, how often we fail to take God at his word. We want one more little piece of evidence. I know it's true in my own life. God, are you, you sure? Can you give me something else to say that you're sure? And the Lord's like, I've shown you 25 times. How many more times do you need to know? Right? But God, I don't want to get this wrong. Yeah, I get it. But it's the same reason that people saw Jesus and stood in his presence and rejected him. That old song that talked about the fact that what if God were one of us? Just as like a slob like one of us, sitting on the bus. The truth is, if you rejected him then you, now, you're rejecting him then. It's that our eyes are either veiled to the truth or they are open to the truth. We need to take God at his word. We need to respond to him at his word. Levi, will you come up here for me just a second? Danica, will you come up here for me real quick? And then Cannon, yeah. All right. Perfect. So Levi, I got tape for you. Okay. So. Absolutely. Okay, so your mouth is going to stay shut, okay? Just for a second. Okay? I'll try not to get on too much hair. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Okay, so. Canon and Danica, what I need you guys to do is, Levi's going to tell you something, and I want you guys to try to figure out what he's telling you, okay? So hang on real fast. Come here. You come, you come over with me real quick. Okay. Thank you. He's going to try to tell you something, okay? And you guys, I want to see if you guys can get and understand what he's saying, okay? So go ahead and try to tell him something. Mm, okay. Okay. Did you, did you hear that? No. What, what did he say? Five dimes in his pocket. Nope, that's not it. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Let's see. Levi, you feel like that's tight enough? Yeah? Okay. Let's try a little more. Okay. 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 All right. Try it again. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Again. It 
Yeah? Does it sound like that? Okay. Now, try to use hands. I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to, I want you to, to, to use your hands to describe what you're saying. You can actually speak if you want. You're not going to be able to make any sense. That's okay with me. Uh. Go for it. What did he say? Okay. You think so, Danica? You think the same thing? Okay. All right. So, Levi, I'm going to let you take your, your tape off real quick. I, I would have too much fun pulling it off. Uh, all right. Perfect. Thanks. What were you saying, Levi? I have $5 in my pocket, right? So, I have $5 in my pocket, okay? So, I don't have five, but you got four, okay? Perfect. So, those are for you. Thank you guys for coming up here, all right? So, notice this piece here that he says. Thank you, Levi and Danica and Cannon. I appreciate it. Notice, he says here that because of the unbelief, it says, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is actually silenced because of his unbelief. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Our unbelief actually prevents us from speaking of the joy and good news that God has given us. We walk with it temperedly. One of the things that I witnessed over this past year in my own life was eight years ago, while I was going through the first series of infections I had in April of 2015, this infection that was impossible to go away went away. And I rejoiced over that miracle. In July of 2015, that infection came back with a raging fire. And I will be honest with you guys in saying that for those three months in between there, I mean, there were people all over that wanted to hear this story because it had never been, it never occurred anywhere on documented record. They had one case from 20 years prior of a woman in the Philippines who might have had the same thing happen. That was it. The night before I got sick, I was doing a radio show, a Christian radio show, who was interviewing me about how this went away. I had shared it with doctors and was talking to doctors. And when that happened, when that came forward and I got sick again, I was embarrassed. I felt like a fool. And I'm ashamed to say that. And so for the last seven years of my life, when those things would arise, I found myself tapering off of declaring those good things because that hint of doubt that that might happen again. This last February, when that mast was removed off my kidney, the Lord exposed in my own heart how much unbelief I really had. And how that unbelief had affected my witness and my testimony.
Oh, I could tell people about who Jesus was and what he'd done. But in my own heart, I didn't want to look like a fool. I didn't want to be the guy who was naive. And I found that that unbelief had rooted itself and it prevented me from sharing with the fervor and passion and excitement the things that God was doing. And I shared that with caution rather than with freedom. You see the difference? You see, he was waiting for one more sign that this was full, this was right, this was pure. And Gabriel's saying, listen, I already gave you what you needed to know. Declare it. Declare it and rejoice in it. And I give and I take away, and if I take away, so be it. It does not change my truth, but proclaim it. The third thing and the final thing is this, that God's goodness is displayed in removing the reproach of those who are righteous before him. God's goodness displayed in removing the reproach of those who are righteous before him. It says, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah comes out like Levi. Levi has tape on his mouth. He's trying to explain. He has $5 in his pocket. He's pretty excited about those $5 in the pocket, but nobody understands. But here's what they did understand. He had something that he wanted to share because he had clearly seen a vision. This was no longer a priest who was childless, who God had not encountered and chosen not to speak to and bless him but rather, this was a priest who had been rewarded with the presence of God, and his reproach was removed. His wife now is conceives. We don't actually know. We assume, because we're very linear thinkers and we like to think the best, like, God, hopefully we never have to go through any bag and your rapture comes before then, or whatever we want to think, right? We we, we, want, we want to believe that we'll never have to experience those things. Well, we kind of look at this passage and go that, well, Zechariah was mute for nine months. He was mute for nine months if she got pregnant immediately. But we're not told how much longer he had to wait. We're not told if he waited a year or two years. We're not told any of that. So he was mute this entire time. And he's trying to say, here's what I've seen. Here's what God is doing. And his reproach is taken away. But listen to her words. Her words are, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. God heard her. All those days that she felt forgotten, all those days that she felt alone, God heard her. And not only did he answer her prayer, but he gave her an even greater blessing. So it is in our waiting I have witnessed so many times in my own life, God, as I wait on the Lord and wanting answers now, but waiting and God using that time to teach and show me and give her the greater blessing that I would have never seen if I had not had to sit in that place of abandon to him. 
Philippians 2, 12 through 16 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish or without reproach, is what that means, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what God wants from us, and that's what God does for us. You are not forgotten. Your prayer has been heard. God is faithful, and it's demonstrated through his personal grace and the fulfillment of his promises. Unbelief will rob you of the joy that God is providing you and of the ability to share the good news freely. But in his goodness, he will remove his reproach. And the removal of his reproach on your life is through his son, Jesus, who makes you righteous and blameless and spotless in his eyes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's prepare for Luke. Let's get excited about what Luke has to reveal to us. And may our hope be in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll worship to close out. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the blessing that you have of fulfilled promises. Seasoned in your grace. Thank you for reminding us that our unbelief robs us of the joy and work that you are doing in our life. And robs us of being the witness that you desire to declare your truth. Lord, may your goodness overwhelm us this morning. And may we walk out encouraged, knowing that we are not forgotten, and you have not forgotten your promises, and there is a day where you are coming for your people to make all things new. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.